And uh, we're going to open to Matthew chapter 25 this morning. Matthew 25, as we continue studying together through the Gospel of Matthew. The doctrine of eternal judgment and eternal punishment has come on hard times in most of the West today. Over the last 20 years, the number of Americans who believe in hell has dropped from 71% to 58%, according to one poll. Back in 2011, I remember a pastor who was considered to be broadly evangelical, um, at least at the time. His name was Rob Bell. came out with a book called Love Wins. became a New York Times bestseller. In that book, he questioned the idea of Christian orthodoxy and uncertainty about any doctrine, and especially the doctrine of eternal judgment and punishment. He couldn't abide the idea that a loving God would send people to hell. Uh, Bell eventually became pretty much of a universalist, that is, somebody who believes that everybody is going to go to heaven, um, every human being who's ever lived. He abandoned church altogether, um, has moved away from really much of Christianity at all to a more sort of nebulous spirituality and has become a part of Oprah Winfrey's feel-good media empire. But nevertheless, he sat and convinced um, rooms crowded full of 20-something white hipster evangelicals to abandon their uh, idea in their belief in the doctrine of eternal judgment. If people like Bell are wrong, then that is a heavy thing to answer for indeed. And you think about the incredible and eternal damage that the repudiation of the doctrine of judgment has done for the lives of so many people. You know, most of the time, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that somebody doesn't begin to go wrong and abandon some key doctrine of the Bible because they start to say, well, you know, I think we've been interpreting that Greek word incorrectly or that that syntactical construction incorrectly. I think we've been taking something out of context, or I don't think we've been harmonizing these scriptures. Most of the time, people start to go wrong when they say, you know what, that just doesn't seem right to me. When they say to themselves, you know, if I were God, I, I couldn't be like that. They say, that just doesn't seem fair, or that doesn't make sense to me. When a person begins to sit in judgment over the word inspired by God, they have essentially cut out any foundation that Christianity has to say anything true. 
anything with authority. And the door has really begun to be open to believe just about anything or to reject just about anything that God has said. They have fallen prey to the very first temptation in all the universe, which was, if you remember, you can be like God. You can determine what's good and evil. Not live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not live according to God's word, but take upon yourself the responsibility for the knowledge of good evil. And, and, and really, I believe, friends, that's where a lot of it starts, and we have to guard our hearts. And, and just say this, when we come to any passage of the Word of God, and any doctrine of that, that is clearly in the Scriptures, first of all, we want to study and make sure that God really said what we think He said, but then that we just say, whatever God says, we submit to. That's reality. We are creatures trying to get some knowledge of reality, and that can only come from the mouth of God. And we just submit to that. We receive it. This is a spirit that comes with humility to God's revelation, not with a sense of pride that men can determine and what is true and what is not true. It is strange to me that many who want to retain the identification with Christianity um, nevertheless reject the doctrine of eternal judgment when Jesus himself talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. And one of those passages is this text in front of us. Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. 
then they will also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I want to re- just set the stage and kind of review here where this text is coming from and then look at three things in the text itself this morning. First of all, by way of review, Jesus, ever since chapter 24, verse 36, ever since 2436, he has been talking about his second coming, his parousia, the glorious manifestation of his rule and reign in glory at the end of this age. He said to them that no one knows when that time will come. No one knows when the consummation of the world will happen, when God will bring everything to a close in the last judgment. But he said, be ready for it. How do you be ready for something that you don't know when it will come? Jesus' answer is that you live every single day faithfully doing that day what God has given you to do. And one day, unknown to us, the master will come home The groom will come for his bride, and on that day there will be a day of great reckoning, a day of great judgment, the final judgment that Jesus is now speaking of here in this passage. And I want to point out to you this morning three things about that final judgment. First of all, the setting of that judgment. Secondly, the basis of that judgment. And thirdly, the description of that judgment. So first of all, the setting of the final judgment. This is in verses 31 through 33, the setting of that final judgment. You see it um, spoken of this way. It, It will happen, according to verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. And we've already seen that this coming is a coming before God, the angel, to receive His kingdom, his throne, his rule. This has its roots in the vision that Daniel saw that's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 7. This is Jesus' coronation as King of kings and Lord of lords, as ruler over all mankind. It begins with the heavenly enthronement of Jesus that took place at his ascension approximately 40 days after his resurrection. But his reign at this Time is invisible. That is, he was taken away from us out of our sight. He was caught up in the clouds of heaven, and his rule is um, not now presently manifest, although it was testified by various signs that Jesus prophesied, which we looked at in the past. But one day, the scripture teaches that Jesus' rule and reign in heaven will be unveiled, it will be revealed. His rule will be visibly and unmistakably manifest, and He will appear. Our Savior will appear again on this earth to judge the living and the dead. He will appear in His full glory in a way that no one will mistake who He is, much like the Lord lifted the veil temporarily 
from the Lord Jesus on the mountain of his transfiguration, and the disciples fell at their feet, at his feet, and were in awe. It'll be like that for all the world to see. This coming, then, of Jesus speaks, that, that Jesus speaks of, it encompasses all of that. It is a time, he says, when he will, when all of the angels will be with him. That is, he will be surrounded as the king, the newly enthroned king. He will be surrounded by his royal entourage. Daniel chapter 10 speaks of angelic princes over various nations and peoples of the earth, all there to do the king's bidding. We also see thirdly, in terms of the setting here, that he is seated Of course, right now, Jesus is seated, the Bible tells us, at the right hand of God the Father. But one day, he will sit in visible judgment over all the earth. We see also in verse 32 that all of the nations will be gathered before the king. Like the chief shepherd sends out his under-shepherds to gather all of his various flocks and to bring them in at shearing time. That's the imagery that's going on here. And then finally, we see in the end of verse 32 that in that time, he will separate people one from another, like a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And this statement in particular helps us, along with the overall context in which this passage is found, this helps us then to begin to identify the timing of what's going on, this this judgment. Already we've seen or a separation, right? A distinction being made, a a division. One is taken and another is left, right? We saw that already. Two men in the field, two women at the mill, and the Lord comes and he separates right down the middle. This, Jesus said back in chapter 24, will take place at the parousia, at the second coming of our Lord Jesus, which helps us then to identify what's going on here. Right now, right now in this present day and hour, the gospel is making a distinction between people, those who humbly receive the Lord Jesus and those who stubbornly reject Christ. But yet those two people go on, continue to live in this same world together. And that happens as long as the kingdom is still invisible, until the king appears, until he comes again. The wheat and the weeds grow up in the world together, right? The sheep and the goats are all out there intermingled. But one day that distinction will be made apparent. And that is the setting here. Now, Regarding this distinction that's being made at the great final judgment, there's one most important point that I want you to see. And that is that this distinction that is being made is binary. That there are only two options here, right? There are on the one hand, on the right hand, there are the sheep. And on the left hand, there are the goats. And that brings a bit of a challenge to a lot of people's minds, that the Lord could be so um, binary in this distinction that you're either one or the other. You know, in most people's minds, they tend to think of 
morality and rightness with God on a kind of spectrum, right? On a kind of sliding scale. And, and you know, maybe there are some people who are really good or some people who are really evil, but most people, you know, we're just all kind of somewhere in the middle, right? Neither fully good nor fully bad. This thinking, though, that kind of thinking, doesn't fit with the Bible's twofold distinction that it consistently makes over and over and over and over again. Think about it. There are sheep and goats. There's eternal life or eternal punishment. Those who are taken, those who are left. The wheat or the weeds. Darkness or light. Dead or alive. Righteous or wicked. Saved or Lost. This is the way the Bible consistently speaks about that division that will take place in the final judgment. Somebody says there's just not much nuance to that. It, you know, I'm doing the best I can, but I'm not perfect. So where does a person like that fit into this binary distinction? Well, uh, of course, it is true that not everybody is as bad as he could possibly be. That most people aren't as bad as they could possibly be. And of course, the truth on the other side is that we don't know anyone who we would look at and say that person is completely perfect. So then why would the Bible speak this way of only two categories? And the answer, the gospel answer, is that the middle is excluded by virtue of the standard that God expects for um, fellowship and communion with him, the most holy God. Jesus said it this way, you must therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So the answer is that there's no one in that category, not even one, except the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if then someone is in Christ united to Jesus Christ by faith, then his very own righteousness is yours. It is given to you as a free gift from God, credited to you as if it is your doing, your own righteousness. The real question then is, are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? That's the real binary. In Noah's day, when the flood judgment fell upon the entire earth and wiped out all of humanity as, as it was in that day, there were those who were saved and they were saved because they were in the ark and all of those outside the ark perished. That's the way, that's the binary here. It is those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. 
You are united to Jesus in faith or are you separated from him? Do you have Jesus Christ's own righteousness imputed to you, counted as yours, or are you standing before God in your own inherent sinfulness? That's the setting of this judgment. The judgment separates men into two and only two categories. But now Jesus talks about the basis of this judgment, secondly. And, and, and this, he speaks of in a way that is in keeping with everything that I've just said, but builds on it, right? Now, think about this for a moment. First of all, let's consider what Jesus said about the final judgment and those who are going to be judged positively those who will be received into everlasting life. This is verses 38 to 40. These people, Jesus said, are, 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 uh, are described in, in terms of two characteristics. Number one, these people are recipients of sovereign grace from God. Notice if he says in verse number 34, he says, these people are blessed by my father. They are people who have been blessed. Which brings to mind the passage that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, when he says that he, that is God, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. I tell you this, if you or I possess the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith, then it is because God chose to bless us before the foundation of the world. That is, it's nothing good in us. It's not by our merit but by Christ's mercy, God's mercy alone. The Father, he says, has blessed these, these who come into eternal life. They are secondly described this way as in verse 34, the end of verse 34, if you take a look at the text, he says to them, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from, be, from the foundation of the world. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, long before any Christian was ever born or had done good or evil, God planned to be gracious to us. And just like Paul, Jesus also, before he ever mentions good works, which he will, before he ever mentions good works, he points, he indicates a deeper basis for God's positive judgment. And that deeper basis is God's own kindness and grace and mercy planned out long ago. It is ultimately on that basis that we are saved so that God alone is rightfully receiving of the glory for anyone's salvation. Come, he says, you who are blessed 
by my Father, who have had an inheritance planned for you from the founding of the world. Our good deeds then, how do they fit in? Our good deeds then come after That is that they flow out of God's sovereign grace. Grace is at the root. Works flow out of that grace. So the Bible teaches us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and following. Look at this. For by, you know it well, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, take a look at this, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is God who long ago showed mercy in choosing to save a people, to bring them to himself in mercy through faith, such that they would love the Lord Jesus and live out a life of good works. It is grace at the root and works as the fruit. This is the way it always is in the scripture. And that's the pattern here as well in Matthew chapter 25. Notice Jesus, first of all, talks about God's sovereign grace, and only secondarily, he says that the basis for this judgment is going to be their loving treatment of the people of God. The basis of this judgment externally is their loving treatment of the people of God. He says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was in prison, you visited me naked, you clothed me, and all of these things. And they say, when was all of this? And his answer is, as you did it to one of the least of these, to my brothers, you have done it to me. We've already seen this term come up again and again, the least of these, the little ones, back in chapter 10 and again in chapter 18 in three different verses. The least of these, the little ones, refers over and over in this gospel to one of Jesus' disciples, to one of his followers. These people are his brothers and sisters. They are those, he says, who do the will of my Father, which of course is to believe in and to love his own Son. And such is the union between Jesus Christ and his people that to minister to a Christian, Jesus says, is to minister to Christ, which is a mind-blowing thing to think about. Consider that the next time a fellow believer is suffering to minister to one of Christ's little ones, his followers, his brothers and sisters, is to minister to Jesus himself. And by the way, the parallel is true, I think, as well, that when someone does minister to a Christian brother or sister, it is Christ himself who is bringing about that ministry through that Christian person, so that all is Christ at work in his body, in among his flock and in his people. This, Jesus said, 
is the testimony upon which these people will be judged. So it's not really to pit good works against their faith in Christ as the basis for the final judgment, like some people want to try to do with this passage. It, In fact, their good deeds are, are the manifestation of their love for Jesus. Because to love those whom Jesus loves, to love those for whom he died, is to love him. This, even though they didn't fully understand and comprehend how significant their actions were, they, they just saw, you know, a brother or sister in trouble, and they recognized in that person the same deeply shared love for the Savior, and that drew them together. And that becomes a testimony of those people's love for and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John, Jesus said it in this way in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you have... Love for each other. Why do we love each other so much? Because we see Jesus in each other. We see a love for Jesus in each other. And that is, that is, um, that's drawing to us. And so we love one another. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 1 verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. That's one of the testimonies, he says. That's one of the marks of being a Christian. That's one of the ways that you know that someone's a Christian because they're drawn to that same love for Christ that they see in someone else. And when that person hurts, they hurt, and they want to meet that need. They love that person because they love her, his Lord, her Lord. Jesus is not saying that these people are judged positively because their love was perfect, but because their love was genuine, that it was the fruit of their genuine love for Christ, whose own love for his children was perfect. Greater love can no no man have than this, than, than that a man lays down his life for his friends. No, this is... To use the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, this is faith working through love. Faith working itself out, manifesting itself, showing itself visibly, outwardly, openly, by love for the people who love Jesus like they do. And on that basis, Jesus says, they'll be judged. This is the outward manifestation of faith. It is love for God's people, love for the church. You know, I have a hard time understanding someone who claims to be a lover of Jesus, who has no no love for the church, no desire to be a part of a church, no sense of communion with the people of God. Well, those are the people who are judged positively. Now Jesus begins to deal with the basis of the negative judgment. And he identifies the sheep as those who, remember, those who are blessed by God, blessed by the Father. 
he identifies the goats. He says, depart from me, you, what? Not blessed, but cursed. Depart from me, you cursed. One are called blessed by God. These are called cursed. Of course, they are under the curse of God. They are cursed by God in a sense, but that is left unspoken. They're also brought under the curse of God, really, we would say, by their own rebellion, right? They are receiving what they rightfully deserve. Noticeably diminished in talking about the goats, noticeably diminished is the language of predestination. That is to say, instead of, like he said with the sheep, enter into the kingdom that is prepared for you from the foundation of the world, he says to the goats, enter into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, which they nevertheless will share in. The point I'm trying to bring out, which I think is manifested in other passages as well, is that reprobation is not the exact mirror image of election. That is to say that God doesn't choose people for hell in the same way that God chooses to be gracious and to save people and bring them to heaven. There is a choice. Everything that happens is by the choice of God. For God is, God is sovereign over all. But the choices are not mirror parallels. And here's why. Here's why. In salvation, God actively transforms a rebel into someone who loves Jesus Christ. But in judgment, God has only to let a sinner continue to go his own way. Because everyone born into this world is born with a determination to go his own way. There is none who understands, none that seeks after God. But for the sovereign grace of God, that would be true for every one of us. If God had just let you make all your own decisions in an absolute sense, there wouldn't be any hope for us. The Bible teaches us that God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him could have everlasting life, not perish under this judgment of God. It is only a man's sin, his pride, his stubbornness that stand in the way of his eternal salvation. But their lack of belief, their lack of love for Christ is also manifest just like the faith of those who believe in Christ is manifest in love for Christ's people. So 
the goats, their lack of love for Christ is manifest in their unloving treatment of the people of God. They see Christ's disciples suffering, but they care nothing for them. In the same way as with the sheep, this is the manifestation of their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 45, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. On that basis, on the basis of the manifestation in their deeds of their heart of unbelief, they're judged. And that brings us to this finally, that these two groups face two final destinies. And we see, lastly, the description of the final judgment in this passage. The description of the final judgment. First of all, with regard to the sheep, verse 34 says that they will inherit the kingdom that is prepared for them. In an earlier passage, we saw Jesus uh, as the, as the master uh, in the parable say to the faithful servants, enter into the joy of your Lord. In the end of verse 45, he describes it this way, that the righteous will go into eternal life. Eternal life in the presence of God where there is fullness of joy beyond any joy that you have ever experienced in this life. A joy that will make all of your joys in this life seem like the joys of a dream as compared to the joys of being awake. Joy unmitigated and unmediated in the very presence of the Savior for all eternity. This is the blessed hope for those who are found to be accepted on that day of judgment. And then you have, on the other hand, the judgment of the goats, those on the left hand, those who are cursed. And they are described in two ways. That that judgment is described in two ways. First of all, in verse 41, it is described as eternal fire. Fire um, brings great destruction. Fire can bring great suffering. Fire usually consumes, and there are those who believe that the unbelieving wicked will be tormented in fire in a measure that is commensurate with their sins before they are finally consumed by the God who destroys both body and soul in hell. But there are passages which really seem to indicate a much more fearful end. And it's a hard thing to look at these passages, something in us, probably because we know this is what we rightfully deserve, 
We want to somehow mitigate the language of these passages. But in Mark chapter 9, the Lord uses the imagery of that final judgment by talking about worms that normally eat the rotting corpses, he says, but these worms never die. And the fire that usually burns up the garbage, it never goes out. It's unquenchable. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man who is, quote, in torment and in anguish in the flames. In Revelation chapter 20, verse number 10, the scripture there talks about the fact that the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and listen to the terminology now, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And remember, Jesus has just said that these people will go away into the same eternal fire that was prepared for the devil. Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, those who worship the beast are said to, quote, have no rest day or night, and that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. These are sobering words indeed. And I want to tell you, I just don't feel like in our sheltered, prosperous Western context here, we are very good at connecting with these pictures of destruction and the awful sense of foreboding that ought to weigh heavy on us. We've lived in a country that has suffered very little and and we haven't had been in a major war in a long time and we haven't had enemies on our shores and our cities burned and all of it. We, we, we have a hard time relating to the kind of descriptions of eternal punishment that our Lord is painting. And I want to ask you this morning to let your imagination be informed by the kinds of words that our Lord is using again and again. Jesus himself speaking this way. It is no loving thing to diminish The, the, the intensity of something that is an awful reality. Our Lord speaks of it as eternal fire. And then down in verse 46, notice the way he speaks of it there. As eternal punishment, which is the parallel of eternal Life. So the, the righteous go into eternal life, the unbelieving go into eternal punishment, which seems to indicate that the punishment lasts as long as the life. 
We only get a glimpse, and that's probably all we could handle, I guess. We only get a glimpse of the final judgment through these images. But what we are left with is horrifying enough to cause us to say that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I want to earnestly warn you to flee from the wrath to come. If Christ is true, if his words are trustworthy, then I plead with you to take them to heart and to turn from sin and to run to Jesus Christ, to love him, to put your faith and hope and trust in him, in his sacrifice on the cross, in the place of sinners, in his righteousness that will be counted to your credit by the mercy of God for all who believe in Christ before this day comes, because I don't know when it's going to come. I don't know. We've been waiting for 2,000 years. Some people say, well, I'll just keep waiting. I'll just be fine. The judgment hasn't fallen yet. Nothing bad has happened to me. Maybe all of this stuff that I've heard all my life, maybe this, this, these words that I've heard when I came in and sat in this service today, maybe none of this is true. Maybe it's just a bunch of stuff that some deluded people believe. But if the words of Jesus, the Son of God, are true, then I plead with you to run away from the wrath that's going to fall on sin and unbelief. How will it be with you in the day of judgment? How will it be with you? When the Lord himself parts people in one of two camps, on his right or on his left, which way will he send you? Where will you go? And everything about your eternal destiny rides on that. In light of the coming judgment, thinking about that today, how is your heart stand before God? And you know, in light of the coming judgment day, how can we help but feel concern and burdened hearts for loved ones who right now do not confess the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior? If what Jesus said is really true, if that kind of eternal judgment awaits Oh, brothers and sisters, what are we waiting for? Why don't we open our mouths and speak the words of truth, the words of life to someone who is lost and perishing right now? And if the Lord Jesus were to return in this moment, or they were to go out into eternity and enter into his judgment now, they'd be lost forever. I'm just praying that the weight of this will settle on us 
as it should. And that the Word of God will change us. We'll go out and the Word of God will have its good effect in us. Would you pray that with me? Oh Lord God, our minds and our imaginations are slow to grasp the weightiness of eternal judgment. At least I confess that that is true for a good many of us a good bit of the time. We so easily get caught up in the little things of the world and forget the matters of great weight. But we have seen these things today and they have weighed heavy on our consciences and we're thankful for that. We pray that that may continue and that the day of judgment may move us and motivate us in all that we do. I pray again, Lord, that if there's anyone here in this congregation, in this building, who is not yet a believer, that you would bring them right now in this moment to say a prayer of faith, to put their hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You would grant to them eternal salvation. In Jesus' name.